When we think about the compute needed for modern AI systems, we often think of big data centers packed with GPUs and AI accelerators. The largest models today require the scale offered by troves of physical hardware and the networking between individual devices. But many AI applications operate quite differently. Your phone, self-driving cars, and numerous other devices we use run ML algorithms. Edge computing and AI is a fascinating intersection that provides both exciting possibilities and unique challenges for AI applications. Daniel Situnayake is a leader in this space. Daniel, along with his colleagues, is helping developers more easily create ML models to run on tiny, low-power devices. He brings a wealth of experience to bear on this problem that comes up in our conversation today. This is the Gradient Podcast. I am your host, Daniel Bashir. If you aren't already subscribed to The Gradient, go ahead and follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can also follow us on Substack, where you'll get notifications whenever we release a new podcast episode, article, or newsletter. But now, without further ado, Daniel Situnayake. Daniel, you proposed this episode to me to talk about a really fascinating area, Edge AI, which we have not gotten into before in this podcast. I'd love to hear your backstory, how you got interested first, perhaps in AI in general, and then in the Edge AI space in the first place. Yeah, thank you so much, Daniel. And thank you for having me on the podcast. Um, I mean, I, I listen to this podcast pretty religiously and um, it's usually my soundtrack when I'm out going for a run. So uh, it's it's kind of exciting and nerve wracking to be sitting in the, the hot seat myself today. <laughs> um, and so my, my journey uh, to AI is quite sort of circuitous and non, non-linear. Um, I started out as a little kid who just loved computers for whatever reason. Um, and, uh, I was really lucky one day my mom brought, my mom's a science teacher and she brought a couple of old computer science books that they were throwing out at her school that, um, were basically like a kind of introductory guide to programming with basic. And somehow I managed as a, I don't know, seven or eight year old to figure out how to, open up a basic interpreter on my computer and start programming and kind of that was that was the end of it really um i uh i went through this really kind of strange route where i always thought programming was like a fun thing you do as a hobby and a, a way to build games and things to play with and it didn't really connect the dots that you could do it as a career um i grew up in the uk and at the time sort of in the in the 90s there wasn't much education around computer science. It was more about IT and in your IT lessons, you'll learn how to use a word processor and stuff like that. So I always loved computers and I thought, oh, well, I'll go into IT. And I went to school for computer networking and security, um, which it was this this really kind of crazy course um, put together by, by this amazing course director, Shahid Shabir at BCU in Birmingham. And um, essentially, 
the course covered like computer networking stuff, um, like how to build big computer networks at large scale, which turned out it sounded quite exciting, but um, it's kind of boring to me. Uh, but on the other hand, there was a load of stuff around something called auto ID technologies, which is basically technologies that it's a little bit of an outdated term at this point, but it was like technologies that can get information from the physical world into computers. So that covered things like RFID and barcoding, where you're tagging items in the physical world um, with with some kind of digital information. But it also covers uh, things like biometrics, so face recognition and fingerprint recognition. And that was really my kind of gateway to playing around with algorithms that can understand things about the physical world. And this wasn't sort of AI in the modern sense using machine learning. Um, this is all kind of hand engineered feature extraction, um, comparing key points in face geometry and stuff like that. Um, but that really kind of is amazing because we've come full circle from there round to doing all of this stuff with deep learning now. Um, and I also went full circle doing a load of other completely different things. And, and I've come round back to this, you know, I was building stuff with microcontrollers connected to cameras, looking at faces and doing stuff. Um, and then a decade later, I find myself doing it again. So I, I went through this big, long journey of, um, after graduating, I wanted to be a helicopter pilot. I started two weeks of, of military training at Sandhurst in the UK, um, decided it wasn't for me and talked my way out of it. Uh, ended up moving halfway across the world to California because um, I didn't really have any any plans after that and um, kind of landed at this little AI startup in LA. And we were basically building call center agents using um symbolic ai and my job was building tools that people at the company could use to build these call center conversations so you could define um how the the system should respond to various things that people would say and do the kind of slot filling and um you know pulling out pertinent bits of information from from people's utterances so that was my first job working with ai and i kind of started out in a, a tooling kind of role. Um, and I've really ended up staying in that lane um, the whole time. I, I build tools um, for developers to essentially build really cool stuff using using AI. And um, to cut a long story short, the journey from, from there to where I am now involves like uh, working at a, a few startups. I, I worked at Sam Altman's um, first startup loops back before either of us were doing anything remotely AI related. Um, we got acquired by a bank. Um, so I worked there doing data pipeline stuff for a while on the, the data science team. Um, we, uh, a, a couple of friends, uh, and I got together and started our own company farming insects for protein. Um, we raised a, a bit of venture funding and built a farm in San Leandro, California, um, which was absolutely insane. We're producing like a ton of crickets a month or something like that, um, selling them to people who are making protein bars and, and high protein snacks and pet food. Uh, did that kind of on the side for a while and full time for a while. And it was like a total of like seven years of this just insane experience where I went from doing stuff in software to 
being like hands on, literally like arms deep in animal muck um, for most of my day. But part of that also involved building basically an IoT sensor system to monitor what was going on in our farm. And we were also trying to use computer vision to understand some stuff like how many baby crickets do we have? Counting baby crickets is a really hard problem. Um, but keeping track of how many you have is really important because uh, obviously the more you have, the the more adult crickets you're going to end up with. So figuring out solutions to that using computer vision started getting back into this idea of like, how do we use devices and sensors with some intelligence to derive some some insight in the world? Um, after I got kind of sick of that and burned out on the crickets, uh, I thought always thought it would be really cool to work at Google. Um, and at the time, Google was doing this whole like we want to be um, a, a kind of AI first company, and I that really resonated with me. It seemed seemed really cool, so. Um, I went off to work at Google and I was working on a product called Dialogflow, which is, again, a, a, a tool for developers to build NLP chatbot applications. So um, this time, rather than using symbolic AI, we're using deep learning. And um, so that was super fun. And I got to kind of play with like modern um, at scale developer tooling for building AI systems. Uh, and I, I I really enjoyed that, but I started to feel a bit unsatisfied at a certain point because I was doing a lot of high level kind of stuff and not a lot of low level thinking about like actual um, network architectures and, and training loops and um, kernel implementations and that kind of stuff. And so I thought I really want to dive deep on that. Um, and I was really lucky to have the opportunity uh, to go over to the TensorFlow team at Google, where I worked on TensorFlow Lite, which is uh, the set of tooling at Google uh, put out for essentially taking models and making them run on embedded devices. So originally that was like mobile phones so that you can run a model in a phone app. But Pete Warden, who's an absolutely amazing guy, um, who, who's one of the founders of that team, started thinking about wait a minute, like, why are we, we stopping at these big kind of embedded Linux devices? What happens if we go go deeper and go smaller? And so TensorFlow Lite for microcontrollers got created. And um, that's essentially a framework for running, uh, and it's an, it's an interpreter for running TensorFlow models on MCUs. So in an MCU microcontroller is basically like, the type of computer that's smaller than a Linux system on chip device. Um, they, so it's like smaller than what you have powering your phone and, and running your phone's operating system. It's the kind of thing that's embedded in loads of different electronic products. It doesn't usually, um, have a, a kind of traditional operating system that you're running on there. You're, you're running bare metal code and we're talking, um, about, memory in the you know at the high end you might have like a megabyte of rom to store your program and your model weights um or you know uh even less ram than that and there's a whole range of devices within that but this kind of stuff is just so fascinating because it's this new frontier for running deep learning models and it opens up so much possibility because suddenly you can run these these models in places that you just couldn't run them before, which we'll we'll dig into later. Um, but to me, it's sort of brought together all these different narratives that I had throughout my my life of like 
playing with these interesting algorithms for perceiving things about the world, um, fitting things onto small devices and trying to trying to monitor these kind of crazy situations like the inside of a, a cricket farm, building developer tools that let domain experts build applications with this type of stuff rather than it being just in the domain of um, machine learning engineers. So all these all these things kind of came together in this one topic. And I got so excited about it that I agreed to co-write a book with Pete um, called TinyML. And we, we wrote it as this intro to embedded machine learning. And it ended up being like a couple of inches thick. And it's kind of like, here's, here's all you need to know to get started in this field. And it's, it's so much stuff. Um, and so that kind of blew my mind a little bit. And then, um, around that time that we, we published the book, um, I ended up chatting with, um, a, a guy called Zach Shelby, who had, was a VP at ARM at the time, but then had just, left the company to um, start this startup called Edge Impulse. And what they were doing is essentially making developer tooling that took the barrier to entry down from like a a um, two inch thick book down to like a two minute tutorial video. Um, and, and they kind of prototyped this tool, which essentially made it so that any embedded engineer could start working on training machine learning models that could be deployed to devices um, and that you could get something up and running in like a few clicks really and that absolutely just you know blew my mind and kind of opened my eyes and made me realize if we're going to get this technology in front of as many people as possible that's the way to go um, so I, I kind of went back and forth it was a really hard decision um, but I eventually jumped ship from my my job at Google and went to work at Edge Impulse um, as as the first hire and we've had this crazy journey since um where over the last three years we're, we're now like um 60 70 people um i'm head of machine learning and we've got a really amazing team of people who are, are working on all these different angles of like how do you make it possible for people to train and deploy models to these tiny devices without having to become a deep expert in all these disparate fields um so in in the course of that, I've I've written another book. Uh, I wouldn't recommend the experience. Uh, it's great when you've finished, but the process is fairly horrible. But uh, that came out recently, co-authored by Jenny Plunkett, who's also at Edge Impulse, and um, it's kind of a high-level guide to this whole world of of embedded machine learning and edge AI. Um, so I've sort of come around this this very circuitous route doing loads of different unconnected things but i feel like i've basically lucked into finding my sweet spot of like this is the stuff that is just absolutely fascinating like if i was working on something else this is what i'd be thinking about at the weekend so i feel really lucky to have kind of found this little corner where it just fits all of my interests so perfectly one thing I find really interesting about what can be done with Edge AI and the background you're bringing to this that I think we'll get into more detail on later is today we often have these debates that seem to sometimes take place in ivory towers and very theoretical gesticulating about questions like symbolism versus connectionism, about 
the need for embodiment and grounding to constitute quote unquote real intelligence. And it feels like some of what you've done, and AJI in particular, allows us to begin to explore some of these questions in a more empirical manner. Because maybe you're not going all the way to full human embodiment, but you are starting to endow a machine learning model with more physical affordances than it might otherwise have, right? You provide accelerometer data and other sorts of sensors that allow it to gather information about the physical world. Of course, yes, it's still going into the model in numerical formats, and it only has this particular set of capabilities with which it can represent the data that's being fed to it. But it is starting to move a little bit more in that direction, which I think is really interesting. Oh, man. Yeah, I think you you kind of um, put into words something that's been bouncing around my head a lot, but um, I, I never really just sort of fully looked at straight on, which is that so many of these kind of um, academic discussions that we have around AI and, and especially things that are, you know, there's a little bit of religiosity around where people pick one side or another. When you are confronted with the constraints of embedded engineering, all those things just become kind of irrelevant. It's like you're worried about like symbolic versus, you know, this kind of deep learning way of, of, of solving problems. Well, if you're on an embedded device, sorry, you're not going to have the, um, you know, computational resources available to go deep on one versus the other you're going to have to have a mixture of both to have a, a successful application and um, when you're you're deploying these tiny little models into places that they're actually going to supposed to be doing useful things that have some kind of safety guardrails around them you have to have a combination of both types of approach you can't just go with one or the other um and with the the questions around embodiment, embodiment, right? You're like fundamentally embodying things. You're fundamentally reacting to things in your environment. So it becomes less of a kind of academic discussion and more of like a a practical and at sometimes infuriating um, question of like. I, I think a big place where we see this is with like data sets. Like we have all these these nice lofty ideas around. Um, like how we can create systems that are generally intelligent and learn from different kinds of situations. And we can um, do things like transfer learning to take insights from one problem and apply them to another. But when you're dealing with sensors that are in a device, um, things like if, imagine you've got accelerometers scattered around in a device and you're trying to infer what's going on. Like maybe is, is this thing being picked up and carried around or is it sitting still or is somebody like, swinging it in a purposeful way maybe it's like a golf club handle that gives you you kind of ai feedback so maybe you you want to train a model to classify these different states um you've got to collect some data if you do that with your prototype device that has the sensors in one position and then you move the sensors to a slightly different position for the production device, it is not going to work anymore. If you move to a different model of sensor, it is not going to work anymore. We, we're sort of so um, overfit 
innately to the constraints of the physical hardware that all of this kind of exciting stuff around um, generalization and and intelligence and reasoning just kind of goes out of the window and it's like oh my god this this thing really is like a one-off like the the model has to fit to the hardware um so we you know data-centric ai is kind of now recognized as the right thing right way to do things broadly um but when you're going down to hardware you need to start thinking about hardware centric ai like what are the constraints of the hardware and what's the impact that has on my data set and on the model and all of this stuff um it's really really cool stuff yeah it does seem like you have to think about that a lot more closely i think in the in the classical ml world it's weird to call it classical ML. I guess that can mean a lot of different things, but I suppose classical as opposed to edge. We are starting to think about hardware more and more when it comes to AI accelerators, the compiler stacks that we use to target different hardware backends. But that is a very different question from, as you pointed out, what are the physical limitations, the physical affordances, the very specific details of the actual object, the thing in the real world that I am deploying something on, that I'm gathering training data from. Yeah, and I think it's going to become more and more of a thing that like stuff that's important, stuff that we realize now is important on the edge because of constraints, um, ends up being acknowledged as important at large scale because we're going to start running into constraints that we didn't before. So a good example of that is how much interest there is going to be around model optimization now that we've got these large language models that are just insanely computationally intensive to run um suddenly you can save billions of dollars in compute costs by pouring money on this kind of research so what started out you know when at, at the beginning of all this edge ai stuff we talk to people about compressing models and reducing the size of models. And they kind of ask why, like, why would you want to do that? Wouldn't you want the biggest possible model that gets the best, best possible results? Um, but now it's pretty obvious why you'd want to do that because we're starting to run into those constraints. Um, the, the other thing around embodiment, right? Like um, we have to do things in an embodied way. We've got these, these sensors that are inherently physical Um We've had the luxury so far with the stuff at the large end of looking at kind of thinking of the world just in terms of text or, or maybe a bit of mixture of text and images. But essentially, we've said, let's scrape the Internet and train models on it and we'll consider those models general purpose. And they are general purpose in an intellectual sense. Um, from the point of view of something that can be expressed as a sequential narrative of tokens um they are they are very general um but if you think about like these these large language models they kind of are embodied in this disembodied world of the internet which is where their training data comes from but when we start talking about putting robots in the physical world or even having um you know server side models reasoning about things that are happening in physical space that's suddenly going to become a, a big challenge and we're going to have to start thinking about like how can you take a data set that's collected in the physical world and generalize it 
even though sometimes when you tweak things even a little bit, it completely breaks all the relationships. Uh, so I think we're going to start to see a lot of these these things that are currently important to me are going to suddenly become relevant more broadly um, as we try to start to get you know robots wandering around our houses doing useful things. I totally agree with that. And I think it's often said that the development of certain technologies the perspectives that are brought to the table when they're being created are inevitably influenced by the backgrounds, the lifestyles that the people who are building those things have. And when it comes to the definitions of these things like general purpose, what that actually means, so many people who will look at these large language models and think that are, I would guess, and you know, I don't want to piss off a bunch of listeners or anything, but probably people like me, engineers who in their job capacity, spend about eight hours a day, if not more, sitting at a computer. And to people like that, much of life exists in that disembodied realm. So it's very easy to imagine that you might be apt to think, oh, okay, well, something that produces coherent words, coherent language, that does things that I would do in this disembodied internet virtual realm well, that is so much of my life that this means general to me. Absolutely, yeah. I was thinking about this the other day and and the kind of definitions of intelligence that we have um, that are, are very kind of intellectually focused and quite narrow. Um, and even the, the general field of, of AI, I think in a lot of ways, if you say AI, um, a lot of people, both lay people and people in the field, are going to assume you're talking about this kind of intellectual, artificial, general intelligence. Um, whereas to me, I, I think about AI as reproducing intelligence synthetically, but the intelligence doesn't have to be the same kind of intelligence that I use to write a blog post. It could be the intelligence that a, um, a, a housefly uses to track down a bit of fruit that it wants to eat, or the intelligence that uh frog uses to understand how much force to apply when it's going to leap to a leaf um and these little bits of intelligence that only make sense in in tight contexts they're not general at all but they're incredibly valuable and incredibly important and if we can find a way to reproduce that kind of intelligence and insight and bake it into the things that we create I think that's, that's, well, it's more like, you know, it's not an option. If we want to have this kind of amazing future with all sorts of automation that people seem to, to dream of, that's going to be a, a natural part of it. Yeah, it does seem like we've forgotten a lot of these things. Like, I recall a few years ago, these videos going viral of like robots that would play the violin and they could kind of make a tune, but honestly, it wasn't anything I'd want to listen to. And not that I want to see robots taking over the function of professional violinists, but there is that aspect of the neural mechanisms, you know, that have to occur in the brain for physical actions to occur, right? When you watch an incredible professional violinist like Hilary Hahn or something, and you just watch the level of like bow control or even specific aspects of technique like up bow staccato. And 
as somebody who is a musician, try to do those things yourself and just completely fail. You're like, there's there's a very real gap here that is kind of tied together both something that is happening in my brain with something that is happening in my body. And that is a, a very real form of intelligence that I, I think in the era of large language models, I feel like we don't think about nearly as much. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's it's also a little bit of this kind of, we think about the things that we find easiest more than the things that we find really difficult. And um, I mean, it obviously is incredibly difficult to create a large language model and all of the the research and the the practical engineering that's got us to the point that these things exist is just, you know, absolutely mind blowing. However, essentially the reason that we've been able to zoom in on those is that we have the internet to scrape data from. And imagine we were a different species and we communicated in a more spatial way, as opposed to this kind of symbolic textual way. Maybe we'd have an internet that represented like movements in 3D space rather than strings of symbols. And in that case, maybe we'd have a, a really awesome, you know, large spatial model instead of a large language model. Um, and it's it's all kind of mediated through like, what do we have convenient access to? Um, the, the, the tricky thing is all of this, this edge stuff um, is quite hard and um, getting data is the hardest part. And that's the thing that we're going to, you know, hopefully see a lot of advances on um, in the, the coming years. But uh, it's one of the biggest challenges versus being able to send out a web scraper. Let's get ourselves a little back on track here. And yeah, <laughs> we did promise an episode on Edge AI after all. I think we've gestured a little bit at some concepts related to edge AI and what it is. And I figure a lot of listeners might have a, a pretty vague sense of what this is. You might think about small models that exist on devices like my phone. We've talked about a few of these things. They have affordances like accelerometers. For somebody who's got kind of a, a vague idea like this, could you maybe give some more concreteness to what edge AI is and what somebody should know about it? Yeah, absolutely. So imagine um, this. there's this little corner of AI and, and machine learning. And I, I use the term AI a lot, even though it kind of, I guess it's become a bit more fashionable recently, um, but it was, it was not something that you threw around much um, uh, up until recently. It's good but for I, marketing. I, yeah, it's good for marketing. Um, I, I actually kind of like the term because we're talking about intelligence we're not specifically talking about machine learning or you know a particular type of capturing intelligence and, and reproducing it but so edge ai broadly is this idea of taking some intelligence and placing it onto a device which is at the edge of the network and the edge of the network um is sort of the the other pole from the cloud like the cloud is like, this all comes from like network diagrams, which I guess, you know, I have a good background in because that was what my, my degree was in computer networking. Um, so you have this nice picture of a cloud and then there are devices connected to it. And then at the very edge of your diagram, that's the edge of the network, um, which is essentially the real world. And um, so if you think in terms of a, a, a topology, you've got like a kind of data center in the middle 
computers connected to that and all kinds of networks. And then at the very edge, if you're trying to understand what's going on in like a real world situation, for example, on a farm, you're going to need some sensors which are collecting data. And those sensors collecting data are the very edge of your computer system. They're the very edge of the network. And the devices that host them are your edge devices. So it's there's a lot of overlap with these things like IoT, like the Internet of Things. Um, an IoT device and an edge device are broadly the same. And there are different pieces of the edge as well. There's like the far edge where the sensors are. And then there's more like the near edge, which is like, close to where the sensors are but maybe bigger beefier machines that are networked with the devices that have the sensors on so the idea is that if you put some intelligence on these devices there's a big benefit versus having all of your intelligence in the cloud or in the central location in the middle of your network Um, and there's this really awesome um uh acronym which kind of uh sums up all of the the arguments for why and that acronym is blurp b-l-e-r-p and it stands for bandwidth latency economics reliability and privacy and we don't have time to dig into each of those but essentially you know uh on on at the sensor level sensors are able to collect unbelievable amounts of data um just constantly refreshing um gathering thousands of samples from the environment per second right like if you think about like a microphone it's collecting collecting audio at thousands of samples per second same with things like accelerometers um cameras can capture you know a a typical video feed you might see could be like tens of um frames per second loads and loads of data and it's basically not feasible to get all of that data from the sensor to your central location Um, There isn't the bandwidth available. If you did have the bandwidth, sending stuff over the network or over the radio uses loads of energy. So it's kind of kind of not not going to work if you're on battery power or something like that. Um, The complexity of systems gets really, really bad if you're trying to send large amounts of data around and it really constrains what you can do. There's also kind of the privacy angle of there are a lot of applications where it's not appropriate to have an always on sensor gathering data that's um, stuck somewhere. So imagine I've got a um, little sensor in my room for uh, home security. I I could have a camera in here um, that's monitoring who's present in the room, but I don't really want like a live camera feed of my office going back to some cloud provider at all times. Um, it, it would be much better if you don't have to do that. So the the, the big idea behind Edge AI is that like, most of this sensor data that we're gathering at all times nowadays is discarded before it even gets used to make a decision. Maybe we'll sample from the feed of raw values periodically to decide, oh, it's this temperature right now, or, oh, there was a particularly big movement in this device. Um, But the vast majority of that potential sample data is getting thrown away. And if you put algorithms on the device that can interpret that that data at the edge and make decisions based on it or distill it into a more compact form or use it for some kind of logging um 
then you're able to make much better decisions than you would be able to with the limited amount of data that you could get back to your central location. Now, another big part of it is latency. Like um, if you're trying to make all your decisions in a centralized way, you're baking in a lot of latency inherently. If you're making decisions on device, you can be really fast. So in some applications, that really matters. Imagine a self-driving car. That's probably like the biggest edge device or maybe like a self-driving container ship would be or something. Um, but you wouldn't want to offload the um, kind of sensory functions of a self-driving car into the cloud because first of all, someone steps out in front of you and then you've got like a 500 millisecond round trip to the server. Maybe you don't, don't put the brakes on in time. And secondly, if your network connection goes down, you're just going to run straight through them. So um, that's a, a really good example of, of why some of this connectivity stuff is really important. So the, the whole field and practice of edge AI is basically how do we take AI often in the form of machine learning models, but not always. Um, and, how do we how do we take these models or this code and make it work on these kind of tiny devices and the devices are inherently compute constrained in a way which feels very unfamiliar to the average ml engineer or ml researcher um so what steps do you have to go through what process can you go through to prepare models that are able to run in that kind of environment and that's broadly what the field is so what I'm reading from this is you also mentioned the example of self-driving cars. There's a bit of a, a spectrum here in terms of I have a cloud provider, which might look something like having almost unlimited compute. And that's at the expense of having to contact the data center that exists at some distance from the device where I might want to make predictions. And so you're going to inevitably have to deal with network limitations and possible outages. And when it comes to the actual devices where I might want to be doing real-time data gathering and prediction, yes, maybe the most extreme challenges exist at what we would consider to be tiny, the phones, the things that are less powerful than phones. But somewhere along that spectrum, you do have larger systems. You have your self-driving cars where there are similar problems, but maybe fewer computational constraints as well. Yeah, so let me talk through kind of the spectrum. So at the, the lowest end, you've got really like low-end microcontrollers that are really tiny, have like, you know, maybe like a kilobyte of memory or something like that. Um, very, very slow little processor. Um, Going up through that spectrum, you go through kind of mid-range microcontrollers, which I was describing before. They're maybe about as powerful as a computer was in the early 90s, a personal computer. Um, but they don't have much memory. They've maybe got like a a meg top of, of RAM, um, often, you know, usually less, um, and similar kind of thing for ROM. Um there are a lot of devices that are starting to emerge over the last few years, especially that are designed specifically for accelerating deep learning workloads on the edge um, because companies that produce these, this kind of silicon have seen the importance of um, building these kind of things. So there's now this category of basically AI accelerators, which are just as small and energy efficient as a microcontroller. And I, you know, I mentioned the kind of 
microcontroller with a typical um, or with a similar sort of uh, power as a computer from the early 90s that I would play like Monkey Island games on and stuff like that. Um, a, a chip like that can potentially run for months on a tiny battery, like a coin cell battery even. So these are really, really low power, um, energy efficient devices. Not all of them, but some of them. Um, companies are now making unbelievably energy efficient devices that actually have a, the ability to run deep learning models um, incredibly efficiently uh, with with very low latency and surprisingly large models. So this is something we're starting to see more and more. And it's it's a little bit of this like hardware lottery um, thing that that um, we we now have a reason to have these type of workloads. So we're getting the hardware to power them, and that's going to lead to more and more capable models at the edge. Um, so you go up from that a little bit, and you get into the realm of like Linux system on chip devices. And so that's what's going to be at the heart of like a mobile phone or a Raspberry Pi or something like that. Those are more like small, fairly powerful computers that are are resource constrained, but they're still, you know, pretty, pretty beefy um, in the grander scheme of things. And then some of those will have things like accelerators and GPUs, like um, NVIDIA's Jetson Nano, um, sort of small GPU, which they use quite a lot of power, um, but they're very compact and you can put them at the edge of the network doing some really sophisticated, like high frame rate, multiple stream video um, image classification or something like that at like near real time. So there's your your spectrum. And if we're talking about hardware devices, like for a given gadget, um, a mobile phone is going to have maybe a few of these types of processes within it. We often have this kind of uh, heterogeneous environment where we've got like a large, big processor that is very fast, but uses lots of energy. And then we have little accessory processors, which um, use very little energy and can be used for sort of always on behavior. So all of this might sound a bit kind of academic, but one thing I want to drive home is that Embedded machine learning is unbelievably widely deployed. Every single phone handset that's been produced in the last few years has a chip on board that is running always on deep learning models for spotting keywords for when you invoke a voice assistant, for example, or doing things like the uh, vehicle collision detection in some phones. So this isn't something that's kind of emerging or it's it's on the way to being a big deal this is probably the the broadest deployment of deep learning that exists in the world if you add up all of the the mobile phone handsets in the world that definitely outstrips the number of gpus in data centers so this is actually just a, a an unbelievably popular and important application for um for deep learning the Thing is, it's been incredibly hard to work with until recently. So only big companies like Google or Apple who are making mobile phones um, could work with it. But we're getting to the point now where it's basically open so that people who are domain experts and not necessarily hardcore embedded or ML engineers can start to make really meaningful, useful things.
It would be interesting to discuss some of the particular innovations that have made this branch of work more accessible. And perhaps we can talk about a few different aspects of this. I think one important side and that will really get a lot of the ML nerds going is the architectural innovations. I can't remember if it was mobile or efficient net, but there are some really smart little architectural maneuvers you can do. I remember in one of these two papers seeing the idea that you could replace some pretty standard convolutional layers with something that was like a one-by-one convolution operation. And functionally, you got something that was exactly equivalent to what you had before. But then if you were to count up the floating point operations that were needed for that layer, it was smaller by a factor of nine or something like that. And so these sorts of neat tricks seem to have been pretty important, at least from my perspective. But you are the expert here. So I'd love to hear from you what's allowed these, um, what's allowed EJI to be something that more and more people can start to make use of in real life? Yeah, really good question. And I, so I think there are a few different angles. Um, so I'll, I'll kind of tackle them one by one and try not to forget the, the ones I haven't mentioned yet. Um, but the, the first one um, related to what you were mentioning around model architectures is really interesting and really important. But I think that's the one where we're only just starting to scratch the surface. Um, that's the one that has a huge amount of promise, um, but it isn't necessarily where what has gotten us to where we are now. It's kind of where we're needing to go next. Um, so I'll start with somewhere slightly different. So I think that one of the biggest, most important things has been the creation of frameworks that allow you to run take models to the edge and run them so the biggest thing here in in my mind has been um, tensorflow light and the ecosystem around it so tensorflow light is a set of tools um, that is part of the tensorflow open source world and um, essentially the two main things there are a converter and an interpreter and the converter is a tool which can take a model that's been trained in TensorFlow or in PyTorch or whatever and basically rip out all the cruft, distill it down to a smaller version of itself and also do some smart things like um, graph fusion. So it takes things that occur within the computational graph that are kind of expressed in a more, more verbose, complex way and fuses them down into things that are more more kind of discrete and and repeated and you then have this interpreter which the original was designed to run on on things like mobile phones and then tensorflow like micro was designed to run on microcontrollers and these were revolutionary because they the, this tool chain allowed you to take a conventionally trained model even just if you grab a pre-trained model from somewhere online and run it through a process to make it run, make it execute on an edge device. And it was something that pretty much anyone could do. It could be a bit fiddly at times. Um, and uh, some, you know, digging around in Python documentation and stuff like that. And um, especially with the embedded stuff building um, you're, you, you end up with like a C++ library, basically. So building this C++ library for your device can be kind of a challenge. But that stuff being created by the, the visionary team 
at Google that that initiated all of that um, really opened up this world. And at the same time, there were there were other people looking at this type of thing, and there are a few few other solutions. And it was that kind of era where suddenly this went from something that was possible in theory. Um, and that could be done by big teams to something that was actually doable in practice. So a part of that is um, the work that's been done around model compression. So when I say model compression, there's there's like a bunch of different ways you can do that. So there's things like um, quantization, there's training models with with pruning and, and utilizing sparsity, there's um, all sorts of bits and pieces like uh, knowledge distillation, but primarily when we're talking about today's edge AI, if someone says model compression, they probably mean quantization. And quantization is just this idea that um, typically you're training a model, the weights and other parameters are expressed as 32-bit floating point values, and so are the activations. But it turns out that because deep learning is awesome, you can actually reduce the precision of these numbers and often not really see much deterioration in the performance of your model. So it's very common to be able to go from a 32-bit floating point um, data structure down to um, quantized 8-bit integer values and see very little performance degradation. Or if you do see some performance degradation, you can actually train the, the model in a way which counts, which sort of factors in that um, error that's caused by quantization, and then and it mostly goes away. So this allows you to reduce the size of your model and the cost of computation by a very large factor. So obviously the size is, is getting shrunken down by a factor of four, but then if you look at a lot of these embedded devices, they don't necessarily have even floating point hardware. So um, it's really, really slow to do floating point math. So now you're down in an integer space, you can you can run a lot more efficiently. And also a lot of these um, small embedded devices have vector extension features in the silicon, which means that you can, if you're doing things like um, certain matrix multiplies, you can tell the processor, hey, I've got these memory addresses. I want you to do, oops, I want you to do this operation. And... Um, it will run it in a kind of hardware implemented way that's that's super fast compared to doing it on the conventional processor. So being able to do this quantization means that you can actually fit reasonably large capable models onto tiny little devices and they will run performantly. And um, so a, a good example of that might be um, on a mid-range microcontroller fitting a um, person detection model that recognizes whether a person is in like a um, 96 by 96 image. You can train a model that's maybe about 100 kilobytes in size or something like that, quantized, um, inc and including all of the stuff that's needed to run it, it will fit into roughly that kind of ballpark of, of um, memory. And you can then run that at like sub one second latency and then you've got loads of things you can play with to make it faster or um you know give up some accuracy as a trade-off um for being a bit smaller or a bit more performant um but suddenly we can take these models and squeeze them down and put them on devices and typically 
people have been using architectures that were created to run on mobile phones. So things like mobile net that you mentioned, um, it is efficient, um, uh, but it was designed specifically with mobile phones in mind, which are very, very powerful um, in the in the grander scheme of things. So the next step, as you mentioned, is how do we start thinking about the the way that we architect models um, so that they work well with hardware? And this is the thing that's really, really interesting to me because you've got things like um, imagine a processor that has certain um, uh, like a hardware implementation of certain mathematical operations. So maybe you can do like a convolutions in hardware, but only with a certain stride or only with a certain um, filter size. And what the, the task is for us now is like, how can we come up with systems that let us design models that are architected to work on these devices that have a constrained set of um, operations that will work well. So we're no longer having access to the entire space of everything we could possibly do. If we want to be performant, we're constrained down to these certain certain parameters for our operations. And um, that's a really interesting thing because there's a lot of heterogeneity in these devices. So in it's not like you know in in personal computers you're maybe talking x86 versus arm um are your processor architectures you got to target um if we're looking at embedded hardware there's literally hundreds of different types of architectures and different vendors and different you know thousands of different chips with different features um and so there's this very real sense where you're potentially needing to fit your model to the hardware itself. Um, and then the, the other big thing that comes in that I haven't really touched on yet is digital signal processing, which is essentially feature engineering for sensor data. And that's a massive thing too, which we can, we can kind of dive into separately. When it comes to the constraints that edge AI systems have in particular. There are often questions in the deep learning world about when it comes to certain applications of AI systems, how much do we care about performance? And it's well known that when you have to make models smaller by techniques like pruning, that might disproportionately affect their performance on certain parts of the training data, even when the top line metrics might look roughly the same. And in a world where you have no choice but to utilize specific network architectures to utilize methods like quantization and pruning, I imagine some of these trade-offs start to matter even more. But I'm curious if you could outline for us some specific ways in which people in the edge AI space think about these challenges and trade-offs. Yeah, absolutely. So this is this is really important stuff because we're talking about like essentially breaking a bit of the assumptions that people have about um the the way that these models work. So even as a an ML engineer coming into this space, you might think, okay, I've I've got this top line performance metric. It looks like it's the same. Let's ship this model. Um but there there are two kind of things at play which um, are, are worth noting. So one of them is like you mentioned, when you 
reduce the fidelity of a model if you're you're quantizing the weights for example or you're doing some other kind of um compression what you're essentially doing is cutting off the long tail so if your data set has like a few core things that are well represented and then a long tail of minority examples of relationships or things that maybe they're important but they're not um well represented in the data set if you're training your model maybe your model's sort of learning some of these or maybe memorizing some of these things and when you um are quantizing your model you're pretty much saying like hey let's like let go of a lot of the the nuance like fine fine variation here and you're going to end up with a model that maybe um doesn't have as much nuance for these things that are not not as sort of well represented in your data set and so a big challenge is how do we build tools that help people understand when that's happening and what it looks like and how to mitigate it so um a, a big part of our work at edge impulse for example is um looking at ways that we can help people understand their data set and then how different subcategories of their data set are affected by these types of things that we're doing to to the data or to the models um as we're going through this process and it becomes really hairy when we're talking about um edge ai data sets because i me- i mentioned data sets are a real challenge um you're often having to collect data that's specific to a particular device and so in in that case it's it's difficult to get data you don't have access to these big general sources of data and if you make changes to your device you have to change the 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 data again so you're likely to feel the pain of being constrained on data sets even more so um how you kind of first of all capture a representational uh, representative data set um and then secondly how you analyze the performance of your model across that data set becomes really important um the other thing is like we we often use these models in modes that are slightly different to what they were trained for so a good example and and this is part of the nature of the edge is often we're dealing with streams of data instead of discrete pieces of data so our whole mental model usually as ml engineers comes from um training on discrete chunks of data whether it's an image or a snippet of audio like a word that someone's saying or some kind of sound we're trying to to learn to detect um but in the field on a device you actually have this continual feed of audio coming in and then you have a model which is taking samples from that feed and running inference and giving you a result and sometimes you can train on that streaming context um which is great if you can do that but it's actually really difficult and expensive to label datasets in that kind of mode um often and it's 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 quite a challenge so often we end up with these datasets especially if we're trying to make use of public data like um speech data where it's often kind of tokenized and chopped up into discrete words we end up training a model on discrete words and then applying it to an incoming stream of data so one question is how do you take all of these like imagine you're chomping through this stream of data and you're getting um results from your model saying oh this is word a or it's word b how do you turn that stream of model outputs that you're getting 
into some insights that you can actually use in your application. And it turns out that's quite a difficult optimization problem. You're trying to figure out like, how do I boil this um, stream of data down? So it gives me some insight um, and it involves filtering and configuring that filter is quite challenging. And it also involves essentially training um, the filter on a bunch of data that's representative of the kind of streams that you're going to see in the real world. So we almost have two stages. We've got the first stage where we're training the basic model. And then the second stage where we're sort of interpreting it um, in context on the type of data we're going to see in reality. And you see that a lot in all of these different edge applications. It's like, you can't just look at that high uh accuracy number that you've you've got from the the basic step of training the model you really need to analyze the performance of the system in context in a realistic environment in order to understand whether it's going to work well there are some really key differences in methodology between edge ai and the type of ml that we we ordinarily do there's one term that I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that people might have heard associated with Edge AI, which is federated learning. Could you give us a, a brief introduction to exactly what that is and perhaps some of the challenges that it deals with? Yeah, absolutely. And I I, I kind of um, realized as you're saying that, that I neglected to mention one really important thing, which is that when we talk about Edge AI today in 2023, we're usually talking about inference. We're doing the training on, you know, a typical sort of environment, you might train any model, and then we're shrinking it down or doing something to it to make it work in inference mode on the edge. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for that. And one of those reasons is that it's essentially quite difficult to train stuff on the edge. Um, you're on this very constrained environment computationally. You don't have a lot of memory to store samples. Um, and also there are not very many labels available. So federated learning is kind of a um, a technique that's been developed to try to um, work around some of that. So the idea is that you might um, be able to essentially capture some data on device, do a little bit of, of training, and then send some updates to a central location where they get incorporated with lots of other updates from lots of other devices and then sent back to devices. Um, and, and hopefully they have overall models which work better. So a really good example of where this is used is in... Um, uh, the predictive text on a phone. Um, it's really nice because you, you can type something in and if you get it wrong, um, you'll go and, uh, you know, it, it suggests it was one word and it was actually a different word. You can go back and delete the word, correct it. And suddenly I have a data point on my device saying, hey, we predicted that it was this word and it actually wasn't, it was this one. Um, so you can you can do a little bit of training on that, share those updates, and potentially over time uh, get a better set of um, or a better model that better represents all the types of things people are seeing without having to send the data back to a central location. You're just sending the weight updates essentially. So that's really awesome. Um, 
And it comes up a lot when I'm talking about this topic because it seems like it's kind of this magic wand that saves a, a lot of um, trouble and, and saves us from this problem where gathering data is very hard. Uh, but the problem is there's a, a bit of a qualifier on there. And the qualifier is that it only really works well for applications that are either unsupervised or where you have labels available on the device. Because you're doing a bit of training on the device, um, you need to have labels present at that moment. So for something like our predictive text, where we we inherently have labels as part of the problem, that's fantastic. But in a lot of use cases, we, we don't have labels as part of the problem. Um, and in fact, the whole reason we've got the model deployed in that context is because we we you know we want to know what's going on. We inherently don't. Um, for example, imagine you've got a uh, camera trap. So a camera traps like a little camera with a motion sensor, and you can put it in the forest. And when an animal walks past, it will take a picture. So conservation researchers use these to keep track of animal populations. Um, so imagine you you have an AI-based camera trap, um, which people are doing their, their training deep learning models and putting them in these camera traps. And when it recognizes a tiger going past, it will count the tiger. When it recognizes an elephant, it will count the elephant. And then you can use a really low um, power radio network connection to get that data back. And it wouldn't be feasible to get back all of the, the photos, but you can get back a count. So... Um, this type of application is really cool. And you might think, oh, with federated learning, what if I, I put out camera traps in the forest and like, even if there are animals I wasn't expecting to be there, I might be able to pick them up and like learn what they are and be able to report them back. But, but you know, sadly that doesn't work because you need a label there to tell you what to train on. And there's no one out there saying, hey, this is a panda in the middle of the Amazon rainforest. Um, you know, use this as a data point. So a lot of applications, it just isn't a good fit. Um, but for those that it is, I think it's really interesting. It does assume um, a kind of larger scale device. So something like a cell phone, this works really well. Um, lots of memory, lots of compute, and also it's connected to power for um, large amounts of time when you charge it overnight. But for something that's got to be energy efficient and very low um, resource in in the field, it's maybe not going to be uh, applicable. That's a fair point, and it's certainly not a bulletproof mechanism. At least that's kind of what my intuition tells me. You spoke to some limitations of it already. Of course, there are going to be big resource constrained challenges, and then when it comes to design, you do have to think about the system and data heterogeneity as well, I, I would imagine. Um, and I think interestingly, feder federated learning is often touted as this really great privacy preserving technology, which I think the fact that you can just send gradient updates and not have to worry about the actual data, which to some people might sound a little bit like data parallelism, the, the fundamental idea there being kind of similar there still are ways to reverse engineer data from ML models. And I would imagine that some of these security concerns probably apply to federated learning techniques as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, any time where you're getting some information back from um, 
where where the device is deployed this is a vector for for sort of privacy stuff going wrong and um i think you know i I think we're in the very early days of figuring out how to do this, um, this type of thing. And I've got a pretty, you know, optimistic view that like over time, we're going to figure out better ways of, of solving this problem of like, how do you improve the performance of models in the field and in ways where you can sort of give certain privacy guarantees um, and it's definitely something that's being actively worked on, which is very exciting. However, I think there is a certain point at which you, there are some intractable problems um, and like, where are you going to get your labels from? And there's really smart stuff that you can do to um, work around those or design your application in ways that um, work around those constraints. But I think fundamentally this is always going to be a technology that like applies really well in some situations and not so much in others. And maybe the privacy angle becomes part of that too, right? We don't always need a hundred percent rock solid guaranteed privacy. Sometimes some situations are more sensitive than others. So um, maybe there's a spectrum there where um, it can be applied in, in some situations, but not in others. I'd love to talk about some more aspects of current and future R&D challenges, and then maybe we can move on to some broader thoughts about the centralization and decentralization of compute that you've picked up from your time in EdgeAI. But first, you've mentioned that you started as a founding engineer at Edge Impulse and now are the head of machine learning there. Could you tell me a little bit about what you're doing at Edge Impulse, its role in this whole ecosystem? Yeah, absolutely. So we've been kind of a, a powerhouse really um, of kind of getting people to know about this world. I think um, a lot of the work, the early days of Edge AI came out of big tech companies and um, big silicon vendors. And we sort of ended up being, you know, in the right place at the right time. And also the the founders did like a fantastic job of executing um, on making us into this like big representative and advocate for this field. Um, I think we've, we've people, maybe we're getting big enough now that this isn't true, but people have always come to us and been like, Hey, wow, I can't believe you guys are like a tiny startup. I thought you were hundreds of people. Um, and I think we've, we've just like tried really hard to have a big megaphone and tell the world about the, amazing kinds of things you can do with these tools but we've also wanted to take a very kind of responsibility oriented angle as well where we we want this technology to be rolled out and available to as many people as possible but we don't want to repeat the same kind of mistakes that have characterized a lot of the um rollout of new technologies over the last decades um in the in the tech industry so we want to kind of build things in a way where people are um we're making people aware of the challenges and the risks and we're helping them mitigate those risks and driving good engineering practices and not just enabling people to use this shiny new toy without thinking about the the consequences so a big part of what we do there's there's kind of two sides one of the the sides is this this practical problem of how do you actually run models on little devices and the biggest challenge there 
um it might not be what you you expect um like the 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 typical thing i think people would expect like oh it's it's really hard to get a model to be small enough to work well but actually you can get really good results um with surprisingly small models and we're used to going bigger and bigger to try and eke out the like you know fractions of a percentage point um and that's you know there's merit to doing that but it turns out you don't have to be always chasing the dragon and if you've got a system which is doing some important task and you're able to um add a little bit of intelligence so that there's some signal that wasn't there before application developers can make really good use of that so imagine you're in a factory you're trying to understand is this a defect or not in this in a part that has been manufactured um maybe if you ship products with defects to customers it's really expensive to kind of go through this whole logistical process of getting the part back and shipping them a new one so if you can catch any defects before you ship them to customers that's awesome so if you have a model that's just slightly better at detecting defaults or defects than whatever your solution was before it's going to add value to a business and so even if you can only fit a really small model that's not super performant on a on a device it might be good enough to give you some benefit so we find less of the problem is on trying to shrink things down and make them fit and more of the problem is on how on earth do you take something that you've trained and get it onto the device you're targeting in a straight straightforward way when there are literally thousands of potential devices you could be targeting with all kinds of different processor architectures processor features um characteristics things like development boards that embedded engineers use to prototype things. Um, they all have different types of sensors. Um, if you want to rapidly deploy something and test it and make sure it works, how can you do that to one of these development boards without having to spend huge amounts of time integrating code? So it turns out a big part of this problem is building a pipeline that can take a model and then spit out C++, which is kind of the lingua franca for these devices um, if you can pass in a model and then spit out c that represents an optimized model that will run fast on a whole wide range of different devices then you know you're kind of golden and you're suddenly enabling people to integrate machine learning into their um, embedded engineering workflow and so what we've probably spent the most time on overall is getting that process right and it's you know it's big and um the the nice thing is you don't have to be the fastest you don't have to whittle out every last tiny little bit of performance um but what you do have to do is be portable and convenient and allow people to um come in like often you're you're sort of approaching this problem where you have a specific piece of hardware in mind that you want to deploy to and we need to make sure that the the model that you're creating or the the logic you're creating overall fits on that hardware but a, a, another whole bunch of users they don't know what they're going to be deploying to and there's this giant galaxy of different possible devices out there so we need to help them select the right device so um the the other thing that's complicated is that all of these different kinds of devices um have different build tool chains 
that come from the vendors. So imagine you've got an accelerator that uses a certain technique to make models run quickly. The vendor typically is going to have a tool chain that you have to pass your model through or some other artifact through in order to obtain yet another artifact, which goes into the process of, of getting deployed to this device. And those various tools it's incredibly hard to get them to run in a wide range of environments. So um, it's the kind of thing where if you're deploying to device A, you might have to spend two days getting the dependencies all set up nicely on your machine and getting them to play nicely with the dependencies you already have on your machine in order to make it work. Maybe they require a specific, really outdated version of TensorFlow or a really, you know, bleeding edge version of some dependency um, or maybe there's a bug and it doesn't work on certain processes so what we've been able to do is wrap all of that horrible complexity and kind of nightmarish engineering tasks and make it possible to just do this stuff in a couple of clicks so i think that's the the biggest value we've delivered on on that side um, and the other big side to it is developer tooling so how do you help people understand um the data set and collect a data set and how do you guide them through that process? And in addition, how do you help people approach the task of feature engineering on embedded? And I, I kind of bring this up a couple of times because it's really, really different to feature engineering that we do in traditional ML, which it comes from this kind of data science world of like, oh, we're, you know, looking at columns and tables and calculating things based on combining different columns or averaging stuff. Um, all very nice, but it doesn't really fly when you're dealing with high frequency sensor data like um, audio. So with audio, you don't really want to feed raw audio into a, a model because imagine you've got like a 44 kilohertz audio sample. So you've got 44,000 samples in a second and that's getting fed into the first layer of your model. You're going to have a lot of weights in that, in that layer. Um, so what we really want to do is um, distill out the pertinent information, the stuff we know we care about before it even hits that model. So a huge part of Edge Impulse is basically building um, signal processing tools that are based on, this is this is like a huge existing field um, that's really, really important um, for, for a long time. Uh, but it's essentially, how do you extract the interesting signal from these big kind of noisy uh, raw raw inputs. So for audio, for example, one thing you can do is take this um, time domain signal and express it in the frequency domain instead. And then you can zoom in on frequencies that are important to human hearing. For example, if you're working on a speech application and you can give less, le less resolution to frequencies that are not important to human hearing. And then if you are viewing your input through that lens, it comes much less highly dimensional and becomes much easier to train a model. Um, but there's obviously some computational cost involved with doing that processing. And so where you might think like all of our work goes into figuring out how to make the model smaller and run faster, there's actually this duality where you've got two algorithms. There's a signal processing algorithm, which um, often you know takes quite a lot of time to run. And it's highly parameterized. There are loads of different things you can train. 
or the, sorry, that you can tweak to get different outputs. And you've got your model side by side with that, which is learning to make sense of those outputs. And there's a trade-off between them. So if you do a better job of feature extraction with the DSP, then maybe you don't need as big a model. However, there's also heterogeneity hardware. So on a given um, microcontroller, you might have acceleration for certain configurations of signal processing um, or acceleration for certain um, kind of configurations of model. And what that balance looks like and what, what that looks like is different from device to device. So we have this task of like for a given device, what's the ideal trade-off of doing work between the DSP and the model to get the best possible output? And then you add in the fact that we're doing post-processing on the output of the model. It all gets very complicated. So I think that the thing that we're trying to do is build tools that allow practitioners to solve all of these pieces at once and kind of take a view over the entire system rather than just kind of focusing on the model and saying like, you know, I've got a fixed set of inputs and I'm going to play around with the model till I get the, the fastest possible thing. If you're doing that, you're probably going to be leaving performance on the table. I want to zoom in on one aspect of the data question here. And so the way you just articulated it to me, it seems like the feature engineering for ed systems looks quite different than how it does for NLP systems, for example, that we might be used to. You're doing a lot of digital signal processing. In standard ML systems, there are lots of questions about fairness. And I think that the discourse over this has become a little bit tiring, honestly. There's just a lot of it. And I think everybody kind of agrees it is a very real phenomenon, the way that the selection of data, the particular meaning of salience to developers is going to inflect the data used to train a model. But I am curious just what that looks like for the type of feature engineering that is employed for Edge AI, and if that's something that you think about in a similar way, or if the debate looks different for you. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I, I think it's almost even even harder for us because we have, um, you know, not only the kind of, the, I, I always found this sort of debate about like data set versus algorithm being the source of bias as being a bit ridiculous because if you think of it this way and like, if you have a, a model that can only um, represent uh, relationships of a certain complexity, you're naturally not going to perform well on relationships that have a complexity that goes beyond that. So clearly the algorithm does have a, an important say here. And we have an, another algorithm. In addition to the model, we have this um, feature extraction part. We have the, the, um, the DSP part. And if we're we're doing this thing where we're kind of configuring the signal processing algorithm based on the data set, that's another opportunity for us to overfit and lose information that is important to general performance. So for example, I, I have a low, slow voice and um, maybe it's lower and slower than the average voice. And if we were going to take a sample of um, people randomly 
and it's not a sufficiently large sample, it may not have many people within it who have a voice that's that's low and slow like mine. So if we then use that data set of voices to learn what the um, filters should be or where we should place the focus in our um, signal processing for audio, we might find out that we get good performance if we exclude any sound below a certain um, frequency because it helps cut out background noise and helps the model. But unfortunately for me, maybe that also cuts out some of the words that I'm saying if I'm if I'm mumbling. And so for me, it won't um, perform very well at all. And so it's it's kind of another opportunity for us to get something wrong. Uh, so there's, you know, there's a lot to worry about there. Luckily, with, um, you know, single signal processing being this field that's been around for a long time, and there are people who are, who are you know, incredible in-depth experts specifically in this, um, who are very, very worth talking to if you're an ML practitioner. Um, I'd thoroughly recommend cornering someone who's a signal processing expert and talking to them. We have some, some amazing engineers on our team. Um, but uh because it's this established field a lot has been figured out already about okay here are the frequencies you should focus on here's the kinds of algorithms that you should use but there's still a lot of nuance in there and for for things that's quite general like with with speech um you know speech is speech microphone and things like that matter to some degree but essentially we care about some frequencies more than others if you're talking about different applications like trying to recognize faults in a machine via vibration it might be very individualized to the point that it's only not just like at that particular model of machine but that particular instance of a machine may have very specific signatures for what does normal look like versus a fault so um, in that case, it's very hard to generalize and there's not necessarily an easy way to say, oh, use this algorithm. It's it's proven to work for most stuff. So we have to be really careful about not excluding things. If we exclude certain frequencies and then the machine develops a new fault, then maybe our fault detection thing isn't going to notice it. And, you know, that can lead to real harm. So it it becomes a, an even bigger problem, I think. I think a, a good last topic for, for us on Edge AI would be some of these broader questions it seems to want us to ask about centralization, about decentralization. We're recording this at a really interesting time where we are seeing some of these questions start to emerge in a really important way with systems like ChatGPT out there, which of course everybody has to at least mention in every blog post or any piece of content produced about AI now, there are these questions of, well, you've got this one company that is controlling a system that so many people are using. At the same time, we are seeing questions about scale and these different axes that we try to navigate when it comes to AI. So for example, this week, Meta AI just released their new llama models, which I think were quite a bit smaller than some pretty state-of-the-art NLP models like Palm, but were trained for much longer on, you know, a trillion or so tokens and found competitive performance. So a lot of these debates are starting to play out in a really empirical way. But as we began to gesture at earlier, I think that Edge AI and the way that you do things 
has some really interesting points of import for these questions. And so I'm curious just to hear maybe some last words from you on how you think about navigating these axes of large to small, ethereal versus embodied. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is one of my favorite things to think about um, because it's it's sort of this philosophical thing almost, but it, it is like tangibly becoming real day by day. And if I think if you look at the history of, of computing, um, we've had this kind of axis of like centralization to decentralization that we've gone back and forth on. It's like a tug of war. Um, I think I, I wrote about this a little bit in the um, AI at the Edge book. And so if you think about like originally, there's just a, like one big computer and then eventually you start to have terminals for for convenience and then eventually more compute gets pushed down onto these terminals um, and, and they become personal computers. But then you start doing more work on the internet and the cloud comes into existence and the sort of the balance point of where most of the compute is is moving back and forth over time. And um, there are huge sort of, societal and economic and and just kind of general um implications of all of that and i think a new axis is starting to form um and that axis is it's very similar to that kind of centralization decentralization one um but it's specifically around intelligence and that axis looks like at one end large language models where you've got this these giant models that are so big that very few um, organizations have the ability to even run inference on them um, at a performant rate and serve lots of users. Um, and at the same time, you've got the emergence of these tiny little models that um, are, are able to run on really small devices in lots of different places in, in kind of inconvenient places around the world. And as well as the size there's a difference in kind of scope. So there's a an axis of generality to specificity. Specificity. So <laughs> if I have a, a small model that's doing something on an embedded device, typically it's highly specific. So for example, in my phone, there's a model that's listening out for a certain keyword. That's all it does. Um, if I am shipping a camera trap um, to to the middle of the rainforest somewhere, it's specifically trained to look out for certain species of animal. And we need to keep it specific so it fits on this small hardware that we have. Um, but also so that we can kind of guarantee uh, that our evaluation of its performance is, is accurate and realistic. So at the other end, you've got these big models that are trying to do the exact opposite thing. They're trying to be universally general we're trying to create models that can literally do anything you've got one model trained in one way on one data set and then you're able to apply it to basically any field you can think of and it will work and i think there's this kind of back and forth between those like there are some things that are really interesting and cool about having these big models that are highly capable and can do a lot but a lot of nasty baggage comes with that. So for example, it's reinforcing if you can only run these things in certain places and if only certain people can train them, the kind of power dynamics of who gets to control these models comes into play and becomes an important thing. Um, and that's not necessarily a, a good thing, I think. Um, so there's a, a kind of also an impact risk 
piece where if you have one big model that's trained on lots of things and then applied or trained on one thing and then applied to many things, it hasn't necessarily been exhaustively evaluated on all the things it's being applied to. So we don't even know whether it works well on one thing or another. Um, and in addition, as one big model that that many people are using on, Im- imagine in 10 years time, we've got like a whole ecosystem of, of thousands of startups or thousands of companies that are making use of the same underlying big models any flaws in those models are going to be massively amplified at scale to billions of users so there's a a lot of risk there and at the smaller end some of these problems start to go away because you're being very specific so you can set up evaluation procedures that give you strong confidence that the model is going to perform at the task that you're setting it to Um, they're atomized to the point that it's one model per device so you no longer have this one size fits all issue where like a a a certain bias in a certain model um is going to affect billions of people you could in fact tailor models through things like um uh, federated learning to work well on a wider range of people and you essentially are distributing and embodying your intelligence in the items that make use of it so for example this model that's in my phone it's just in my phone it's not anywhere else um if i'm building a a little widget that does some useful task a little robot that helps me in some way the intelligence it has is embodied in it it's not dependent on um, a relationship with a big compute provider it's guaranteed to continue behaving in the same way it may experience concept drift and things like that which is a really really big problem that's one of the trade-offs of this type of of um, setup but it's also not going to get updated by a company and start behaving slightly differently after maybe that company gets some pressure from the government to um, you know prioritize certain search terms or bias people a certain way um and it, it's it, it's really a kind of completely different universe. And obviously, as a society, we get to pick the set point of like how much of our technological world lives in this distributed way where it almost becomes like a f- part of the fabric of our built environment and of our world and how much of it lives in this sort of monotheistic kind of godlike entities that exist at the heart of big companies and are essentially not something that's hackable or accessible to to the general public or even you know the average engineer so to me that really speaks to this like back and forth we have in society generally between the idea of of centralization and decentralization democracy versus autocracy and even like monotheism versus polytheism and i like I always think about this since the, the beginning of embedded machine learning that like in, in a sense, and you see this in like certain science fiction um, that like the, the most advanced sort of um, wonderful seeming science fiction worlds and, and fantasy worlds are the ones where our very tools have intelligence embodied within them. And rather than being these kind of sovereign individual entities that we are interacting in our our world independently of everything else we're we're living in this ecosystem of tools and items that 
embodies some intelligence and can help us. And we're, we're almost like in a community with our tools rather than um, being sort of subservient to them um, in the context of these, you know, this idea of AGI um, we're almost becoming an afterthought in certain, in certain ways. Um, so, it, and I, I think that that kind of thing has always appealed to me. If you look at the kind of science fiction that I like, or like, a, you know, Lord of the Rings, there's not really magic there. There aren't sort of gods in the sense that we have gods in our um, kind of modern big religions, but you have aspects of intelligence embodied in certain types of things. And um, I think there's something as a human being that, appeals to us about that that type of of nature um, and we find it easier to relate to than the alternative of having these like giant entities that that gatekeep the world for us um so yeah a, a bit of a, a, a tangent there but that was great yeah the questions of cognition as something distributed really do force someone to think in a slightly different way. But we often anthropomorphize so much about intelligence systems and try to make analogs to human intelligence. But it's interesting that we perhaps sometimes inadvertently end up at, as you said, these godlike systems, things like foundation models that are encapsulating everything, when the realities of human intelligence, the way we actually do things. There's a lot of distribution. There is some level of collectivization. I remember reading this fascinating article back in high school about genius as not just the act of one person, but as a sort of collective endeavor. And I think there's something very real to that. But there is, of course, the discreteness of of your particular experience, how it factors into what is relevant to you as a human being and then how you utilize that that relevantness to think about the world. I I think you examined some kind of parallel ideas in a really interesting way in this blog post you wrote on panpsychism which I really liked. Could you for somebody who might not be too familiar with what panpsychism is just give a, a quick rundown of what you were thinking about here? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think this is a really interesting idea. Um, you know, I try not to get too attached to things and sort of have a strong belief in one thing or other, but there's something I find really intellectually appealing about the idea that there's there's this thing in in consciousness, in, in the discussion of consciousness called the hard problem of consciousness, which is essentially like, at what point does a consciousness like ours arise? Um, if you're sort of assembling it from different pieces that are not conscious how can something conscious come into existence and then there's a, a sort of um uh, uh, I, i'm not a philosopher at all um so i'm probably going to say a lot of things that are, are wrong and, and incorrect here but there's there's this sort of um narrative and and set of ideas in philosophy around panpsychism and this is the idea that like it's maybe a little bit naive to think that our consciousness just arises through some phenomenon distinct from the matter that makes it up and in reality perhaps everything has some degree of consciousness and i'm not talking about like a rock is sitting there thinking about what it's like being a rock but maybe just that um awareness of existence is a fundamental property of reality um and that 
when you get these more complex systems that are, are, are together, then that awareness is maybe more complex and, and larger. Um, but one thing I find really interesting is that like, and, and it goes very in line with the stuff we're talking about, like tools and the, the nature of tools having some intelligence because the, the best tool that's ever been created is the human body, right? Like we see ourselves as this kind of um, intelligence that's sitting in the control room of this um, amazing machine that can do all these, this cool stuff. And like, it can't do all of it immediately. Like if you want to get good at playing guitar, you have to practice. Um, but it's, it's so highly capable and we, we identify very strongly with it, but in reality, it's actually this machine that's composed of multiple different parts that are operating completely independently of one another. If I go to sleep or if I'm under anesthetic, there are loads of incredibly complicated systems and processes that my brain is still controlling and my body is still controlling that are happening even though I'm not conscious of it. Um, and we kind of view ourselves as the driver of this vehicle. Um, but it kind of crossed my mind, like, what if you think about, like, um, at any given moment, these other parts of your mind or the other parts of the machinery of your body and your brain and and however that, that functions, there may be something that it is to be those as well. There may be some awareness of being of different systems within my brain and maybe i'm sort of talking to you right now from the viewpoint of one system but maybe it's more like a a fuzzy overlapping set of systems that um you know any any two of them interacting together also has an awareness of of what it is to be that maybe right now as i'm looking at my hand the system that's controlling my hand and positioning it also has some sense of being um that is just sort of a a, a fragment of of what, what i feel like it is to be me um and i i think it's really interesting to think about like i i don't really believe that um if we create a little processor and run a little program on it that that program would have some sentience or some some you know ex sentience is the wrong word but some some consciousness and experience of being i believe that maybe the the matter that makes up that system would have a feeling of being, but I'm not really convinced that like a program that's operating in this kind of symbolic virtual space would have a, a sense of being. Um, but it is interesting to think about, like, as we understand more about consciousness and we're trying, we're trying to learn to integrate tools with our own consciousness. What are the mechanisms behind that? And if I wanted to, for example, I think of my memory as part of my consciousness. If I wanted to add on some extra memory banks, because my memory kind of sucks, um, how would I do that? What would that look like in a practical way to add on to my mind in a way which extended my consciousness in that direction? Um, and so this is where the kind of philosophical and the technical start to overlap. And I don't think I'm really qualified to make any assertions about either of them but uh, i find it really interesting to think about i don't know that anyone could make assertions about a lot of these things for anybody who still happens to be listening to this section i'm gonna quickly plug my interview with david chalmers that i did quite some time ago because 
it does go into a lot of these questions about the hard problem of consciousness, how that overlaps with AI. And if you want to feel slightly frustrated, great episode to listen to because, you know, there there aren't fixed answers to a lot of these things. But I want to dig into a couple of these parts of your view here, just because I find it really interesting. First, you mentioned that you feel like maybe a, a processor or something doing computations, you wouldn't classify as conscious having a sense of being, but the matter forming it might. So I guess with the the panpsychism, that view that you seem to have, you know, for like a human, the components of matter that make up my body, they have their individual sorts of consciousness. And maybe that comes together into my consciousness. You have the combination problem there that you've talked about. But it sounds like you wouldn't go for a notion of like substrate independence or something like that, where, you know, a computational system could be said to be consciousness equivalently in the way that I do. Did I kind of read what you were saying, right? Yeah, I mean, this this is just my like intuition and sort of fairly uneducated one at that. Um, but I, you know, I think that to me, it intuitively feels like um, that, yeah, like maybe like all matter has some degree of, a, a feeling or not a, even a feeling but like of a an essence of of being like there is something which it is to be an atom of sodium um for example and that that kind of helps explain how our what feels like a kind of complex self-awareness maybe arises through like the the conjunction of a lot of these different bits of matter that are structured in different ways but i wouldn't i it doesn't feel intuitive to me that like um that relationship might be able to exist between the um electrons that are stored in different locations within an sram chip for example um which is maybe something that would be required in order for that system itself to have self awareness like i i I obviously this is very un, unqualified sort of uh, speculation, but the idea that I love from science fiction books that like you could essentially, if you have the right program, if you run it on like a x86 CPU, it would be self-aware. Um, like, it, you know, if you're running on a Turing machine, is there a program that you can write that on a Turing machine the program itself running on the Turing machine would experience in a tangible material way in the same way I experience it, consciousness. I would suspect not, but I would say that the the material that the Turing machine is made from maybe has some experience of existence and that maybe, you know, when that material is arranged in certain systems, that somehow, you know, brings together some of that into a, a larger structure. But it seems a bit of a stretch to me to think, because like, essentially, if you have the right program, um, you could implement it on a piece of paper with a pen. So if I'm doing by by hand the number crunching for this program that represents an uploaded human being's mind executing or whatever, I don't feel like if I'm scratching that out with my pencil somehow, somewhere in some space, this um, serialized mind is aware of itself, if that makes sense. That does feel a little bit wild. And I think I share a lot of your intuitions. It's pretty hard to empirically verify a lot of these things. 
One thing you wrote in your blog post that I think kind of takes apart some of the details of this view is really interesting, where when you're describing the sort of combination of consciousnesses that might constitute that of an individual human being, you say these consciousnesses all exist concurrently, overlapping with no meaningful distinction between them. Every subset and superset of causally linked matter has its own simultaneous experience with none more prominent. There is no main consciousness my mind has. I'm curious if, so in this point, I think you're specifically speaking about like the individual consciousnesses that compose like a single human being. But I'm curious, just for the sake of um, consistency, do you generalize that insight to starting to think about like multiple human beings, for instance? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I'd say, you know, from my point of view, it's a very kind of like um, associated with material things. So it's, it's interesting because like we, we're talking right now over the internet. Um, I, I wouldn't, I, I, I wouldn't sure be, I wouldn't be able to say whether is that there's some kind of, um, some kind of structure that has an experience of being us having a conversation because we're not actually necessarily interacting physically. Um, who knows what the rules are of how this stuff would work underneath. Whereas if I'm um, sitting here and I've got like a few pounds of bacteria inhabiting my intestine, um, is there any meaningful way that you can say that, um, you know, if we, if we believe in this sort of idea that there's pervasive self-awareness um, of all connected, physically connected things, could I say that the, the awareness of that, bacteria in my gut is distinct from that of me as a human of course not right like my mitochondria at some point in the long distant past were separate um organisms that migrated into these these um cells so it's really interesting and i i think you know as a a who knows what the if this is a property of of matter which i can't speculate really either way it's more like i i like talking about this stuff but um if this is a property of matter what are the sort of rules of physics that apply to it what counts as something being sort of close enough to something else that it shares the same self-awareness um maybe this whole idea of looking at things is completely wrong but maybe not and maybe there are some rules like um, they, these things have to be interacting in a certain way. So it's, it's kind of difficult to say, but I'd say that like gr- a group of people or, um, a, a group of animals or even an entire ecosystem, or it doesn't necessarily have to be living things, right? Like the, the, the physical processes that are happening inside a planet or a star or a solar system, maybe those, interact in a way that kind of allows some kind of awareness of experience which is meaningful in the same way in the same ways that ours is maybe in some way the solar system or the galaxy has an experience of self that is some way comparable to what we would think of as being like a a being um, and this is where it starts to get really, really sci-fi or really kind of um, spiritualistic. But uh, I think it's just really interesting to think about. Yeah. Um, 
there does seem to be something very real about the idea of a collective intelligence that two or more people could produce in something like a conversation or another form of collaboration. But as you said, there is a very real aspect to the phenomenal experience of being you or me, where there is like a fine line between us. And there's so many different ways that people have tried to come at this. And it's often unsatisfying the way they get to it. So I guess anybody who's taken like an early modern philosophy class will probably have seen Hume's theory of the self as just like an evolving bundle of perceptions that really comes from if you want to go the content or justification empiricism route, but the empirical route of, well, I perceive my perceptions, but I don't conceive a container for those perceptions. Therefore, I don't have justification for believing in that container. And then therefore, I'm just this set of perceptions. And you take that view far enough with Hume. And I think he himself was really troubled by it because then you can end up with this view of, well, everything, everybody is just this set of perceptions. And so how do you figure out that dividing line between what is one person's perceptions versus what is another person's perceptions? And, you know, even he didn't exactly have an answer to that. And that certainly contradicts our our experience of, well, <laughs> my perceptions are diff certainly different from your perceptions. I'm pretty sure that I can't access the experience that you are having right now. Um, and so you yeah, hear, I, yeah, I think it's really interesting. I mean, for one one thing I kind of like to draw a very distinct line between intelligence and self awareness, yeah, um, and sort of the feeling of being. I don't think to me those aren't even slightly related, and that's why I can, you know, talk to you about something, and together we represent a joint social intelligence that's yeah, you know, have it's more capable than either of us alone. Or that's why I can say sort of metaphorically to I'm putting a bit of intelligence in a a little machine learning model that's running on a device because I don't think intelligence and awareness are linked. But um I do think this this idea that like we we aren't um discrete is incredibly true and that we've we've sort of as individuals we have this idea of ourselves as individuals, but like, what does that even mean, right? Like I'm more like a wave going through space time of matter that happens to be coherent and sort of together in one place at any given time. But the matter that makes up, you know, the the pig that I ate bacon from for breakfast this morning, um, is that meaningfully separate from me? Uh, I, I guess not. Yeah, I think... Well, first of all, thank you for calling out that I did a little bit of conflation on intelligence and consciousness. I, I still think that there was something kind of interesting to your view about like the collectivization. Collectivization isn't the right word, but you know, like a collective sort of self-awareness that can arise from multiple people. But it, it does feel like there is going to be something phenomenologically different about what that collective consciousness, that collective awareness is maybe not it's hard to it's hard to say a lot about these things but i think this is a really good place to close so what is becoming my my final question these days is you're somebody who's i think gone through a really interesting route and has a set of just fascinating perspectives on doing ai and a lot of the contemporary questions we we start to ask ourselves and you've also built 
a really wonderful career in in this field. For somebody who is still maybe at the beginning of their journey, kind of coming out of college, thinking about their first job, maybe going into a PhD program, wanting to perhaps find their niche, figure out where they can really leverage their sets of interests and experiences. What what advice would you give to that person? So, well, first, thank you for the the kind words. Um, I, you know, I think I've done some pretty interesting, strange stuff, and uh, I'm I'm pretty happy with where where things have have led. But I I think really there hasn't been like a plan of like, oh, I'm gonna do this, that, and the other, and end up here like from the beginning. But I would say what has really worked well for me is just kind of following my curiosity and being very open to to making little plans of like hey this is kind of interesting i'm not doing it right now but in three years time i'd like to see myself being able to do this what can i do to make that happen and i'm i'm very much a believer that like luck has a huge impact on life and i I, you know i don't really like this sort of myth of the the self-made man and and all that kind of stuff um, that people use to excuse brutal um policies of governance but uh i do think that you you kind of you don't make your own luck but you can train yourself to identify promising opportunities and if you can learn to spot like when do i have that internal itchy feeling of being really curious about something and at the same time when do i notice an opportunity to get a bit closer to doing that thing um, all day, then if you feel that itch, like follow it. And if you if you can kind of learn to to pick up on that, um, then going with that feeling has always been very helpful for me. I've done a lot of a lot of interesting random stuff. At least <laughs> this is awesome advice. Well, Daniel, this was a really really wonderful conversation. I appreciate all the work you've been doing in in the Hedge AI space and. Um, that you were so generous with your time to speak to me today. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Daniel. I hope I didn't waffle on too much. Uh, And uh, yeah, really fantastic conversation. Thank you. And that is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub, where you'll find all of that, as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.